Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Oh, thanks for being here this Monday, January 23rd. If you um, didn't hear the news yesterday... Lynn Bramer, longtime WXRT radio personality, died Sunday morning. He had been a part of our lives, sharing his love and thoughts on the radio for nearly 40 years here in Chicago. I know for um, me, he was a big part of my life. He had been a friend. He and Sarah and his son Wilson, who's the same age as my son Ben. It has been a long, beautiful road, and Sunday morning it came to an end. You know, Lynn had been battling prostate cancer for a long time, and um, most of the treatments he had done while he was just doing his regular thing at XRT. But um, the cancer didn't give up. And when it got to the point where it had spread, he knew that um, his best chance (coughs) would be more intensive treatment that um, he also knew would be debilitating. And indeed it was. So um, first he gave himself a little break by switching shifts, but then he finally had to take a break, only coming back to the radio in November after um, months away. And uh, he shared what that journey was like. Shortly after he started this more intensive treatment, He developed a lung infection. And for those of you who have been through the cancer treatment process, you know any infection is a serious infection because chemo pretty much wipes out your immune system. So an infection that normally would only be annoying can literally be fatal. He developed a lung infection, was admitted to ICU, where he was given intense antibiotics, Two days after getting out of ICU, he spent another three days on a regular floor before he was allowed to go home. (laughs) And on the heels of that, his, um, the femur in one of his legs just spontaneously broke. It wasn't a fall. He didn't hurt himself. Nobody hit him in the leg. It, um, he's, his cancer was in part in his bones. And I'm sure that made them especially weak and fragile. And he just had a spontaneous fracture. So then he was back in the hospital and a doctor had to put a steel rod in. I remember a friend of his had a condo near Northwestern and Lynn was staying there as he recuperated because he told me, it was like, I have to use a walker now. 
But you know what? Lynn Bramer, who always told us it was great to be alive, lived that way too. And he pushed through. He continued his treatments. And he got to the point where he felt like he could come back to work. And aren't we lucky for it? He was, I mean, people say all the time that somebody was one of a kind, but think about it. You know, especially in radio, people come and go. He and maybe Terry Hemmert were really exceptions to that rule. They stayed and stayed and stayed. And they were entertaining. They were informative. They were enlightening. And Terry still is when... She uh, She's retired, but she still drops in at XRT now and again. She dropped in today to do an, a midday show honoring Lynn, sharing some of not only, you know, the music he loved, and he loved music. Did you ever follow him on Instagram? <laughs> he would post these videos where he would play a song in the studio, and he would videotape himself dancing like a madman. And as as Terry will tell you, watching Lynn dance was not a pretty thing. It was not a pretty thing. But um, you just knew that he was having the time of his life and that he wanted you to have the time of your life, too. I mean, we were just... We just heard him on the radio like a week ago. And now he's gone. You know, um, he didn't talk a whole lot on the air about where he came from or how he got where, how we got to Chicago, how he got to XRT, except for one day when he first was moving from mornings to middays. At the end of his very last shift as a morning guy, he gave us a quick look into his life up to then. He gave us a peek at the love of life that infused everything he did, everything he ate, and every song he played. You know, it was 2004 when a woman asked me, Lynn, if you could do it all over again, would you do things differently or exactly the same? And I told her, Radio is a cruel mistress in stiletto heels and a come-hither wink and a whip behind her back, but some of us crave the punishment. Because your first radio job is in a double-wide trailer on a hill above the Hudson River, and you park among the goats that live on the farm next door. And you're 22, and the high school kids with the Wild West landscape etched on their rusted van come knocking on your door at 2 a.m., so you put on a side of electric ladyland and climb into their smoky chariot to take a swig of blackberry brandy and admire the Marshall Tucker A-Track collection. And some nights you open a moth-encrusted window to toss a live microphone in the tall grass so you can hear the roar of crickets on the air. And one late night, you're so tired you fall asleep in the empty lobby of the empty station during Steely Dan's Asia. And you don't wake up until you hear the click, 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 click. Would you do it differently? Because you drive with a guy named Dave to concerts in the Berkshire Mountains in a hand-painted purple 67 Malibu convertible. 
And when some Irish band, even younger than you, shows up for an interview in 1981, you call the lead singer Bono, because Sonny is the only Bono the world has ever known. And when Chicago calls, you're not sure you can leave because you're already making $14,000 a year, but it's where you've always wanted to work. And you learn about the city living upstairs in a two-flat at Grayson Waveland. And maybe a couple of guys you know named Mars and Marty invite a rock band or two over to your apartment because it's really close to the Cabaret Metro. And you're supposed to be the music director, though you feel as clueless as Britney with sheet music. So you go to over 200 concerts a year. You go to places like Orphans, Holsteins, the Avalon Club, Club 950, Wise Fools Pub, and some Wednesdays you spin records on 111th Street for 50 bucks. You take Scottish bands to Legends, and you take British bands to the Wiener Circle, and you take everybody to Joe Dano's Bucket of Suds on Cicero Avenue. I mean, would you start to think you would do it differently? And one morning, you wake up to gunshots on Rush Street, because it's New Year's Eve in 1991, and there's no reason to go back to sleep because you're a morning guy for the first time in your life. Would you do it differently? No, you do it just the same. I'm Lynn Bramer on 93XRT, and before you turn the page, you got to turn it up. You got to turn it up. And he did. He would crank that music in the studio and dance his little heart out. Those of us who've known and loved Lynn Bramer also know he was quite possibly a num- the, the number one Cubs fan. Every day, every day, every, every season, they would open the season with a special live remote broadcast. And he did some... A work with uh, that had to do with the Cubs organization. One of the people who was involved in some of those projects is Bob Vorwald. I have known Bob Vorwald since my days at Channel 5 when he worked hand in glove with Mark Giangreco. Um, Bob, of course, has gone on to much bigger, greater things. He's like a big local TV tuna now, um, whereas Gian Greco and I are just kind of like, you know, dust on the side of the road. But Bob um, knew Lynn Bramer and did a couple of projects with the Cubs with Lynn Bramer and joins us now to tell us about that. Hey, Bob, how are you? Hi, Joan. Gosh, it's good to hear Lynn's voice. I'm glad the sun came out today. We needed that because this is a a dark time when we lose somebody who's been such a wonderful constant in our lives for so long. He really was that and more. And he really was just wild about the Cubs. Talk about the work you guys did together uh, for the Cubs. Well, you know, Lynn grew up in New York, a Yankee fan, but he came here in 84, and one of the promises was he was going to get to watch the Cubs in the World Series, and of course they didn't make it. But he quickly became a season ticket holder. Um, He initially was against lights in Wrigley Field until he realized he could watch more games, and he quickly (laughs) did that idea. And he was always in Section 229. In April, on the cold, rainy days, he'd have his ski goggles on, and he was that guy who was always around the Cubs. So um, when, for example, we did a 100th anniversary show about Wrigley Field, of course we had to talk to Lynn, you know. You wanted his voice involved in anything. Uh, But the most fun I had was um, WGN's last season in 2019. Um, He always did Lynn's bins, and some of those were about the Cubs. And I saw him once 
and we were talking over a drink, and I said, would you be interested in making these video essays? And he said, well, you know, I've got most of them around. And I said, well, if you could rework a couple of them, I'll put the pictures to them. And it was a great partnership, and you want to work with Lynn Bramer. When you do what we do, you want to work with talented, original people, and nobody was more so than that. So I said, Lynn, I got about X amount of dollars. We'll figure it out. And he just kept coming up with more, and we kept putting it together. So um, they are a treat. Um, He's got one about Ernie Banks that you can find on YouTube. He's got one about opening day. Um, And when we had to say goodbye on the last telecast, there was nobody I wanted to narrate um, what WGN meant to the city and to the Cubs and everything, and the uh, the calming voice of Lynn Bramer because it just eased the blow. And uh, he was a great friend to us. He was a great friend to everybody, and we'll miss him so much. Bob, thanks for uh, joining me today to share a quick memory of Lynn Bramer. I appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Thank Bob Wal- Vorwald is a Thank director you. of production at WGN-TV. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to a couple more people and get their uh, recollections of Lynn Bramer right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You know, it takes one to know one, and um, one of the greatest, most respected radio personalities in Chicago is Bob Stroud. You know him from the drive. You know him from his scratchy 45s. And he joins us now to talk about somebody that he knew and liked, Lynn Bramer, who left us too soon this Sunday morning from prostate cancer at the age of 68. Bob, it's so nice to talk to you again. It's been too long. You're telling me. Excuse me. Yeah, it is great to talk with you, too, Joan. I don't know how many years it's been, but it's been too many. So I'm sorry uh, it's this occasion that uh, we found the time to speak with each other. I am, too. Um, How well did you know Lynn? Well, I knew Lynn uh, just from bumping into him at uh, parties and industry gatherings and concerts and things like that. And I uh, did a gig at XRT for seven weeks, maybe one of the shortest employed people (laughs) at XRT uh, between jobs. So I had a chance to speak with him a time or two while I was there then. But uh, we always had much in common whenever we spoke because, well, obviously we're both in radio and we love the medium and we love the music and uh, we love talking about it and uh, sharing stories. That's one of the things that you two, um, I think, stand out for. You both, you you know, it wasn't, you, you don't just sit there and, you know, read commercials and read titles of songs. You are famous for your depth of knowledge about music and about bands. And I got the same feeling with Lynn, um, and not just because he would take them out late at night uh, to the wiener circle. But, you know, I always felt like when I listened to both of you, not only did I enjoy myself, but I learned something. I mean, that's not so common, is it, Bob? Well, I mean, from my perspective, uh, it's it's kind of what I know in life. I don't know a whole lot else, but uh, I I made it uh, I made it a point to find out and learn everything I could at a very young age about radio and records, 
and uh, bands and groups. So um, I, I never thought that I would make a living off of it when I started collecting records and listening to the radio at 11. But that's how it all turned out. And, you know, Lynn was probably more of the same. Uh, we just both gravitated towards music and everything that concerned it. And uh, we're lucky enough to uh, make it our life's work. One of the things that I don't think people understand, I mean, when I was on television, people always assumed that I knew every other person on television pretty much across the country. Um, and, of course, that wasn't the case. But in Chicago, even though there are a huge number of radio stations, particularly the people who last in the business in Chicago, you do brush shoulders and you do get to know each other. What was, I don't know if you can even remember the first time you um, were somewhere where Lynn was and, and what you thought at that time about this guy. You know, so I was thinking about that because I, I knew that would probably come up in this conversation. I don't recall what might have been the first time that he and I met, but I remember Distinctly, uh, my most favorite time with Lynn, it was at a party probably, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And uh, we both had enough alcohol <laughs> to sort of spill our guts to each other about our love for, are you ready for this, the fourth season. Uh, we, we, we both grew up in that era. Uh, I have a few years on Lynn, but uh, we both had this enormous respect and love for the the talent that was the Four Seasons and the record they made it. So he and I geeked out for about a half an hour with each other, just uh, comparing notes about different songs and performances having to do with Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. But we could have talked about anything, you know, because we both shared the same love for the, the same era. But uh, that happened to be... Uh, the party that I remember uh, being with Lynn at the most, because it was a surprise to both of us that we would uh, find uh, somebody else who was so geeked out over the four seasons. And and what I I heard a little bit about what Terry Hemmert was saying today, and she called Lynn a Renaissance man. And I know that phrase sometimes is thrown around very lightly, but for Lynn Bramer, it really was true because not only could he geek out with Bob Stroud about the four seasons, but he could turn around and have a conversation about Milton or Dante or Kant. And, and then, you know, sometimes when I, especially when I was uh, living closer to downtown, when he got off the air, we'd meet for lunch and we'd go to a restaurant and the chef would come out and it would turn out that he and the chef were best friends. And, and, you know, and he was, uh, uh, I mean, it was, it was like, seriously, is there like nothing this guy doesn't know about and isn't an expert on? Yeah. Everybody grabbed on to when, uh, he was certainly so relatable as an air personality. And, uh, everybody did feel he was just their best friend, as he often used to say on the radio. So uh, he was far more versed in uh, different subjects than I could ever be. But um, that's what made him so relatable and so likable. There was something in Lynn that so many people could relate to and listen to and enjoy. 
Um, I I felt the same whenever I listened to him here or there. We're on opposite each other for a while, but uh, sometimes we weren't, and I get a chance to listen to him, and I think, man, I I wish I wish I could go into those areas and speak like that. But uh, Lynn just had a real bead on um, pop culture and how to speak to it and relate to it that you know the average guy on the street could relate to, and that was. One of his many strengths, just uh, his wide range and wide depth of subjects. And with people like Bob Stroud and Lynn Bramer, who are on the air every day, you can't take on a persona. You're on the air every day. You are who you are. If you've listened to Bob Stroud for decades and Lynn Bramer for decades and then you meet them, they will be who you think they are. They're not going to be, you know, something else um, because you can't hide yourself. And Lynn Bramer, you knew him, you loved him. And if there's a part of you right now that's wondering, yeah, but what was he like in real life? No, that's that was real life. You definitely saw who he was. Uh, I don't I don't know how he went about developing his uh, air personality. Uh, from from the get go, but you know, it took me a few years to figure out um, who I was on the air, and I realized that I had to be myself because mm-hmm. that was the most relatable thing to me, and it would end up being the most relatable thing to the audience. And so, I just drew upon my experiences in life when I started to talk about something, and um, I felt much more comfortable being on the air than because. In the beginning, you're trying to find yourself as a disc jockey. And when you realize that you just have to let all pretenses down and be who you are, uh, then it all becomes perfectly clear as to uh, how you should sound and who you should be. And that's who Lynn was. And, uh, you know, like you said, you knew it when you met him. Well, this is the same guy he is on the radio. Yep. Bob, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us to talk about Lynn Bramer. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to have you uh, want me to come and speak today. So thanks very much, John. I appreciate it. We are going to take a break. Somebody else who knew Lynn really well was our good friend, Tony Fitzpatrick. When we come back, we're going to talk to Tony about Lynn Bramer. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We lost Lynn Bramer yesterday morning at the age of 68. After a years-long struggle against prostate cancer, a battle that he actually took some time off, a few months off, so that he could undergo some intense treatment, he came back to middays for way too short a time. We got to hear him again, but um, the cancer won this Sunday morning. One of the people you hear me talk to a lot is Tony Fitzpatrick. And uh, Tony and I were just talking yesterday about when it was that he met Lynn Bramer. And we figured out what, Tony, it was like about 40 years ago. Yeah, we're definitely dating ourselves. (laughs) I met met Lynn and you and Dave Benson the same night. We were doing a benefit for American Blues Theater. And they had uh, chosen some of my poems for part of the program. 
And I met you and Dave and, and Lynn. And Lynn and I had something in common in that we were both huge fans of Steve Earle. And I knew Steve. Um, and, you know, every time there was a Steve Earle show, I ran into Lynn. And we became fast friends and, uh, you know, friendly rivals because I'm a diehard White Sox fan and he bled Cubby Blue. So uh, we often had a, uh, a friendly kind of antagonism about that. When was the last time you spoke with him? I spoke with him about a week and a half ago, a really quick phone call. And, um, you know, he'd been back on the air, and I was I was thrilled, you know. Um, you know, I, we, we kind of had similar tastes in music, and I could tell when he was pushing a certain band or, um, you know, any time I needed to know something about contemporary music or even contemporary poetry, um I remember one time, you know, telling him about my favorite poem in the world, the Wallace Stevens poem, called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And I, I read one, you know, couplet from the poem, and he recited the rest of it. Oh, my God. That's so Lynn Bramer. When it comes to poetry, this guy ain't beanbag, you know. Um, he, he was, you know, even though he was very accessible i mean he had this sort of every man persona but i'm telling you this guy was brilliant incredibly well read um and and if and frankly look at look back over the lens bins you know they are yeah. they're some of them are just pure poetry that's got to be a book that that will have to be a book because it's a uh, i mean i think his greatest gift is that how he connected a community. And I don't just mean via radio. I mean, he connected people, the disparate people from the art community, from, you know, the culinary community, from the, the, the sports fans and Chicago fan community. And this is what constitutes a culture. This is how culture is made. Um, there, there's very often one person who is this, this uh, spark and the conduit uh, to all of that spirit, and uh, that was certainly Lynn Bramer. Plus, he was a really nice guy. I mean, you and I have both know people who, um, you know, have achieved a great measure of success. It doesn't always correlate that there's somebody that you want to sit down and have an Italian beef with. Yeah, no, I mean, believe me, uh, Lynn Bramer, I mean, he was just as excited to get at Johnny's uh, dipped sweet and hot as he was to get, uh, you know, vicious wah. I mean, he, he was uh, an everyman when it came to food, you know. I mean, and when he was seriously going to go out for a great meal, he would wear what he called his eating pants. Yeah, I remember that, his eating pants. <laughs> yeah, he said, Patrick, I'm coming over to the barbecue, and I'll remind you, I'm wearing my eating pants. So that was him serving notice, you know? Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. How many times did I hear that? And, man, you were, you were on notice that this was going to be some serious chowing down. Yeah, and it was like, and when you talked about food with him, you better had known your stuff because it was like he was, uh, 
a locomotive train and he'd kick open the, the coal furnace and you had to start shoveling. You had to really know stuff about food and restaurants. And there was not a chef in Chicago that was not a close personal friend of Lynn Bramer. Yeah. I mean, he knew them backward and forward. Um, our good friend John Hogan uh, hosted me and Lynn many times uh, for lunch at Keepers when he was the head chef there. And uh, just absolutely was, was astonished by what Lynn knew about cuisine. Well, and Lynn, for those of you who followed him on, like, Instagram, Lynn also was a hell of a cook. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, he would just even this last week, you know, go look at some of the pictures that he's he posted in the last seven days. And it'll be this amazing meal and that he made and and just wide, wide ranging tastes in art, in literature, in food. In music, I mean, Terry Hemmert earlier today, Tony, called him a renaissance man. And if there is anybody who deserves, truly deserves that title, it was Lynn Bramer. Absolutely. Absolutely. He had an immense, generous appetite for life. Yeah. He shared with everyone. It is just gutting. Yeah. to think that he's gone. I mean, like you, when he came back, I was like, okay, yeah, we know the cancer's not cured, but, you know, you know, we know these days you can sometimes hold it at bay for a really long time. I mean, you know, Maggie Daly, I'm reminded of her, that she, you know, she had metastatic breast cancer. Yeah. And yet it just seemed like year after year after year, she, you know, fought and she continued on with treatments and I kind of was hoping I should have known better. <sighs> I had not, I had not known that uh, Lynn was battling cancer until about a year and a half ago. Well, uh, he not, uh, yeah, he kept it really close to the vest. Yeah, he did not belabor it. He did not want anything like, uh, you know, the vacuous kind of pity that people keep upon you when they hear that you're ill. Um, he. With him, it was go forward, live life, enjoy every moment, enjoy every sandwich. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that was, that was one of the last things Warren Zevon said. And uh, it hung pretty well on Lynn Bramer, too. Enjoy every sandwich, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm reasonably sure he did. Uh, so, yeah, this is a, a, a stunning loss and um, an opportunity to uh, – evaluate and and foster forward the community that that Lynn built and uh, Lynn made out of whole cloth and uh, whole human personalities. I mean, I know so many people because of Lynn Bramer uh, that he introduced me to that gathered, you know, gathered us all into the same room when we came to know each other. Um, And when you were, you know, when you were a friend of Lynn's, it was kind of like, that dog whistle thing, you all kind of recognized each other. <laughs> I could tell they all had Cubs hats on, which I am forgiving. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, nobody ever loved baseball, music, food, life, uh, poetry, literature. No, nobody ever loved all those things with equal alacrity like Lynn Bramer. Yeah. And... It wasn't just those of us 
who knew him personally. As I, I said a minute ago when I was talking to Bob Stroud, if you heard him on the radio, you knew him too. Because he he didn't hide, he wasn't afraid to quote Milton for fear that the audience would be alienated. You know, I mean, uh, no. He never, he never once assumed that his audience w- was dumb. He always assumed he was talking to people who knew just as much as he did. And, you know, there's a funny anecdote. Uh, the first day of my final, uh, oh, the opening of my final museum show, Lynn came out, Lynn came out, Neil Steinberg, you know, some of the guys that uh, I, I'm fortunate enough to call my friends. Uh, he came up, and you know what? People were every bit as thrilled to see uh, um, uh, Lynn Bramer as they were to, you know, be in my show. I mean, it really kind of uh, took a little bit of pressure off of me. And he had a great time. You know, we had a, we had a wonderful visit. We walked around the show together. We just didn't, uh, you know, there's an old saying, your friends are the people who show up. And, uh, you know, in this lifetime, Lynn Bramer, he showed up. He absolutely did. And, um, you know, uh, earlier uh, in the beginning of December, uh, Jackie Bang and Dina Bear and I had a little uh, holiday get together. And I knew because, you know, having been through chemo, I knew that he and Sarah weren't going to be able to attend. But I invited them anyway, because when I'd had a similar party pre-pandemic, Lynn and Sarah showed up. And I'm telling you, Lynn Bramer was there till the bitter end. Lynn Bramer was there past the time when the party was supposed to be over. And he was holding court and people were hanging on his every word and laughing with him. And it was, um, it was just such a delight. And I know that he couldn't come this year, but I, I invited the two of them and he, you know, very graciously said, you know, he couldn't make it. So afterwards, I sent him some pictures from the party, and he sent me just the most most beautiful, most beautiful note back. And I think that was our last communication, because as I told you Sunday, I was just thinking Saturday night, you know, I know the doctors gave him a chemo break for the holidays, but it's January now. I bet he's getting ready to go back to chemo, and I should reach out to him. Because, you know, having been through chemo, I would sometimes offer him completely unsolicited and unwarranted advice of how best to get through it. And I was just, I had the thought um, late Saturday night. And I thought, well, it's too late to send him a text now. I'll wait till the morning. And that's when I woke up the next day and I discovered he was gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah. I've, you know, uh, every gathering I was ever at with uh, Lynn, he thoroughly enjoyed himself, and nobody could close a bar like Lynn <laughs> Bramer. You know? He could close a joint down. I remember nights at the Bucket of Suds, and uh, that was a legendary uh, place out by the old XRT on uh, Central Avenue or Cicero Avenue, one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I, I remember just how joyous he was um, in any set, you know, whether people were in tuxedos or shorts and flip-flops, 
Lynn Bramer made himself at home and made everybody else at home. Um, Just a a finer human being I never knew. Tony, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about Lynn. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, You know, as Tony and I were just saying, a lot of people who become famous in radio or television are interesting and smart and engaging, but not all of them are kind and generous and open to everything that life offers. Lynn loved talking with the mega successful rock star, and he loved talking with the guy next door. That was his superpower. Many, many years ago, Lynn did a Lynn's Bin essay on bagpipes in rock and roll. A surprising number of rock and roll songs have them. You can go listen to ACDC's Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll to hear some. But as he wrapped up this Lynn's Bin on bagpipes, he talked about how bagpipes are played every time a Chicago cop dies, every officer, every time. He explained at the very end that bagpipe music was the best way to leave this world and the best way to enter the next. Godspeed, Lynn Bramer, our best friend in the whole world. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have an election coming up February 28th. You might have heard me mention that once or twice or pretty much a thousand times. In addition to voting for the next mayor of the city of Chicago, we are going to be, those of us who live in the Chicago area uh, and live in the city proper, are going to be voting on some aldermanic seats One of those is in the 30th Ward, where Ariel Raboris is retiring. Ruth Cruz is one of the candidates who is going to be on the ballot to try to capture that seat. And Ruth joins us now. Thanks for being here, Ruth. And I'd love uh, for you to be able to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Joan. Thank you for having me. Yes, my name is Ruth Cruz, and I'm running to be the new All the Women of the 30th Ward. And a little bit myself, I'm a mother and I'm a community uh, volunteer. I'm raising my two children, Elaine and Ricky, with my husband, Oscar, in a proud union home. I came to Chicago from Mexico at age seven. I attended Chicago Public Schools, and I went on to earn my master's degree in management from Roosevelt University. Um, I'm currently the assistant director of admissions for Roosevelt, and I have over 60 years of experience in higher education, which 10 years have been in management. 
I have lived in the 30 world for over 20 years. I have done a lot of different type of volunteering from vaccine events, food giveaways, back to school events, and community cleanup. But I'm also part of the Avondale Restorative Justice Community Court, and I'm an elected member for the LSCF Foreman High School. So that's in, you know, when it comes to the 30th Ward, we have many um, beautiful uh, neighborhoods from Belmont Cragen to Avondale to Portage Park, the Villa, Old Irvin Park, and also Kilburn Park. So we're excited for all the great communities that we have. Well, Ruth, you know, one of the big issues is public safety. That's um, front and center, what all the candidates are talking about, being asked about. What is your platform? What are your plans to make Chicago a safer place and to make the 30th Ward a safer place? Yeah, absolutely. That is the number one topic. We we all experience we want to say not only the 30th Ward, but across Chicago. Um, Different things that we have to address. First, we have to address the root causes of crime. Could be lack uh, of education, a lack of youth programs, lack of jobs, lack of mental health support. Could be many different uh, things we have to focus. But one of the things that we'll be focusing on is on youth programs. We want to make sure that the money that is being allocated for youth programs are being used wisely, and they're also being used within the 30th Ward. We want to make sure that we give our youth um, a reason to be involved in different activities when it comes to after-school programs, sports, again, extracurricular uh, opportunities. Well, let's look at that a little more closely. Is there a program that exists right now that you think is working well and deserves to maybe uh, have an increase in funding? Yeah, so for example, even in the 30th war, we have what's called the after-school program. Um, they're doing well. I think we they have where you know good amount of um, participants are there. But yes, do they need more uh, funding when it comes to branch out to different locations, yes, because, you know, if you don't have transportation to get to this location and your parents at work, it makes it really hard to travel to this location, but why not increase it within the schools or maybe other um, centers as well. So you would like to see these after-school programs be supplemented with some kind of um, maybe a public transportation or bus transportation or something so that more people can take advantage of them? Absolutely, and this is something we have to work with our CTA is to offer those opportunities to our youth, especially, you know, sometimes you, they may not have the money to to write um, the CTA, and there may not, you know, that might discourage them from actually going and participating. So we can work where our youth is allowed to ride in a public transportation to get to their destinations, whether it's school or whether it's other um, programs. I think that's something we have to look closely with our um, leaders, again, given the opportunity. But that's just one of the areas. Another thing that I would like to focus is uh, mental health specialists. Working with the um, police, when it comes to uh, mental health, that's something that we're not talking often, and we have to make sure we take this serious. This is a serious issue that we're all living in. Um, you know, a recent poll shows that 44%, 44% of Chicagoans say they're suffering mental health problems since COVID started. So we want to make sure that, again, mental health specialists are working with our police to alleviate some of those um, calls so they can focus on other issues like uh, violence, crime, or theft. 
But again, it, it is something that is really close to my heart and when it comes to mental health, and that is something that I'll be focusing also when it comes to the platform. That's another uh, topic, but also working with caps engagement in our community. Some districts, um, Joan, and I'm not sure if, um, everybody's aware, but some districts, they also have what's called DCOs, the District Community Officers, and they are involved in the community, building a relationship and building trust with the community. So we only want to have caps, but also DCOs be involved more in the community to address day-to-day um, situations that we've been encountering, and more importantly... Like what kind of, like give me an example of the kind of situation that you would like uh, addressed to a greater degree. Um, you know, there's sometimes, you know, they, you know, com- members in the community may say, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, pop- people walking around the community I'm not sure of, or, you know, we've seen, um, you know, fighting or, you know, things like that, and we want to make sure that we are addressing, um, you know, when the community says, like, hey, I, I heard this or I saw this, maybe for them to say, hey, you know, next time you see something, play, make, make close, pay close attention to the description. So then when we come next time, we can analyze and see the situation. But um, those will be some things that, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. residents may, may see and may not, you know, really know if they're really sure. But again, more importantly, is also addressing any situation that comes where, you know, they might be in a, a busy area and then there might be, you know, disturbing uh, calls when it comes to some of the residents or businesses, things like that. What in the in the time that we have left, explain if, if you're elected to the city council, what is going to be your highest priority? The one thing you're determined to get done. Um, well, there's a couple of different things, and I'm glad you um, asked for that because, of course, um, public safety, um, education, uh, of course. Um, but then to answer your question, it is, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, mental health. We want to make sure that we are having a new city council committee on mental health. And this, by, by having a committee, will encourage all elected members to be part of this and have discussions about this issue. It is important. Otherwise, if not, if there's not a committee, we don't have those meetings to discuss the issue, but we want to make sure that we have that. And again, also to make sure that we must reopen the clinics, um, but also to properly fund those who are open. For example, some clinics in the community are for, for example, the Kids Youth Center or the CPS Healthcare Center as well. So that will be, again, there's just so much we all want to focus, but mental health will be one of my top priorities as well. We are uh, speaking with Ruth Cruz, candidate for the 30th Ward seat being vacated by Alder Ariel Raboyris. Uh, she will be on the ballot next month, February 28th. Um, Ruth, thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking to us about your candidacy and what you will want to accomplish in the 30th Ward. No, thank you for having me. I mean, it's an honor to be on your show and having this opportunity to talk to our residents of 30, the 30th over across Chicago as well. Thank you for bringing, um, again, giving out the opportunity for those to hear more about myself. But thank you again. Thank you. We are going to take a break. We are going to have news at the top of the hour. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Hal Sparks right after this. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. If you are a regular WCPT listener, you know that every Saturday you are entertained by Hal Sparks, who talks politics and... um, (laughs) And makes us hoot and holler along the way. He also uh, does that on his own. You know, Ray, my partner, we listen to you on Saturday, but Ray listens to you all the time, Hal. And I've quite, I'm not quite technically. um, So where the heck is it like Facebook he listens to you on or where the hell are you? Well, first of all, hi, thanks for having me. It's lovely to talk to you. Um, And secondly, everywhere. I think, uh, (laughs) When you, when, if you don't grow up in the business or you don't have a wedge that gets you in, um, I found that ubiquity is your best tool. So I'm on <laughs> I, my Facebook page. I'm on twitch.tv slash Al Sparks. I'm at, on YouTube at infotainmentwars.com. I stream on Twitter. I used to stream on the VK, which is the Russian Facebook, just to mess with them. I uh, obviously they I think they shut off my channel for some reason. I can't imagine why. And then uh, of course I will occasionally be on Rumble, but only when I'm covering topics that will particularly irritate right wingers, like the non-existence of the Hunter Biden laptop and that kind of stuff, because it really you know it gets them all <laughs> aggravated. But it's yeah. So I'm everywhere. What did you say you were you on you were on YouTube Info Wars? Infotainmentwars.com. Oh, Infotainment yeah. Wars. <laughs> yeah, we don't need you to scared me there for a minute. <laughs> no, no, no. Yes, that's that's that actually that started out as a gag years ago cuz I would do a a character around my friend Richard um, who was a DJ in Dallas. Uh, I would do Alex Jones back in the day cuz he was <laughs> he knew Alex and so I would do Alex Jones and that kind of stuff, but I can't do it that much anymore because it ruins my singing voice. But in general, um, I, doing that, I, I bought Alex Jones and InfotainmentWars.com. And, and that was, you know, and I started using one of them to punt to my, uh, to my regular channel. Uh, talk about your rock band. Ray's heard you guys. He says you're really good. Yeah, Nerd Halen. Yep. We're, uh, we just did, uh, a big gig at the M Casino and Resort here in Vegas. It was very nice. I was very surprised. It was a huge audience. Like the you, people can follow Nerd Halen on Twitter. The picture of us in front of the crowd, like that's a solid rock show, I gotta say. And then, uh, we're at Yamaba Indian Casino in Riverside out in that way, um, tomorrow night. So I'm, you're blessed to have me because usually I would be on vocal rest in between my regular shows, but I, but it's you. So I made a special exception. Well, I appreciate that, Mr. Sparks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, tri- would you say you're a tribute band? Yes, we're absolutely a tribute band. Yeah, N- Nerd okay. Halen. I mean, I have my own personal band, Zero One, which people can look up. It's Zero One featuring House Sparks and listen to the- That's my legit music that I do. But I don't really mix comedy because I'm a stand-up with my music as a musician because t- those are two separate arts to me. But in this particular case... Um, the, you know, we are, we are a, we do both David Lee Roth and, uh, Van, in Hagar era Van Halen songs and, and then a lot of comedy in between. And my rule with a tribute is you have to sound as much like the real band as you, as is humanly possible. And then if you do that, all bets are off. You can act however you want in between the songs, do whatever you want, joke around, yada, yada. But as long as you're being faithful, um, on behalf of the fans, 
um, then you can, yeah, that's, so we dress as nerds and we do Van Halen songs <laughs> and it's, it started out as a, a goof and it turned into a real thing. Don't ask me how, but it's worth it. Well, you know, we listen to you when you uh, do your live segments, and a lot of times what you'll do is you'll take a political clip or a part of a speech mm -hmm. that someone has yeah. made, and then you you give it the Hal Sparks annotation. You explain uh, what, yes. like what's really going on or why they're lying or what context is mm -hmm. missing from what they say. And I was when I spoke to you before, I was really stunned. To find out that you don't prepare, you don't rehearse that. You just listen to what they have to say and you just respond to it in real time. Yes. Well, the, the, I, I feel like there's a lot of dunking channels on YouTube and around that where people will listen to stuff and they will, uh, they'll see a clip and then they'll go that the person screwed up or made an erroneous point or went off script or said something that was double speak that's and they go I'll just take that piece out of context with whatever else they were saying and I'll <clears throat> I'll mock it or break it down and make them to be the idiot based on my standards and an isolated incident or two I feel the safest way to avoid any of those accusations is I take clips as they post them I don't pull things out of a giant segment, you know, like I, when I do Trump's rallies, I do the whole thing. God awful. As long as the, I mean, sometimes the show ends up being three, four hours because I go through it lie by lie. But if they post it and say, you know, on their channel or Fox news takes a clip from Tucker and puts it online to me, that's them putting their flag in that piece of the argument and saying, this is our statement on this topic. This is what we believe. This is the best quality of that argument we have. Otherwise we wouldn't have posted it and it makes our point for us. And there I feel completely safe and going, okay, this is everything. If you left context out, that's not my fault, but I can break it down in good faith without looking ahead of time. And part of the reason I don't prep is because I want to go on my knowledge of the issues, not just on me setting up someone for a knockdown which uh -huh. is what a lot of shows do. So it's it's my way of separating myself out, but it's also because I care about the issue, not necessarily about the personality. And the and you know, and a lot of these arguments, you'll and I'm sure you notice this, um from the time that they start as a QAnon post all the way up to when uh, you know, Tucker Carlson or somebody in the upper echelons of the right-wing media sphere say them, there's a lot of bumps along the way, but you can track those talking points and they're their inevitable failure by doing that. Does that make sense? So you yeah. can, you can, I will jump in in that stream somewhere along the way where this talking point is either growing or collapsing and point out where they are intentionally, and that's more my concern, where they are intentionally misleading their audience. Who is your uh, favorite uh, politician or pundit to, uh, to do these segments with? Oh, that's very difficult. That's so good because everybody has their own special treats. I Dan Bongholio, <laughs> who's uh, um, uh, you know is a consistent. He's got a. They used to have a regular show, and then they bumped him to Saturday. The same thing they did with Judge Janine. Once the tires come out of them, they they just park them on a five person show or give them a Saturday show just to shut them up. And Dan Bongino, <laughs> they his his show. If you want the dumbest take on Fox. That it's him and Brian Kilmeade. Those two, if you want something, because they have an amazing talent for 
watching a video, posting, literally saying, let's watch this clip of Corinne Jean-Pierre or some liberal or a Democrat saying something or Biden saying something. You go, here's the clip. And they'll tell you what's about to be said. They'll, they'll literally lay it out. They just said that they did X. And then you'll watch the video and it doesn't go anywhere near saying that. Like no one would watch that chunk of video, whatever you believe, and come away saying that's what they said. And then they'll immediately, after you and I have just watched the clip, that they've said reinforce that and reinterpret it and often misquote directly what we all just watched together. And my message to them would be stop showing clips because you're making yourself look even better at your job than we know you are. So those are the two big ones. Greg Kelly on Newsmax is the most miserable man on the Internet. <laughs> and there's a special joy in watching him just flail through his show with his anger that Trump isn't still president and his total disregard for reality. And the best thing about him over the last couple of years, besides him freaking out on a public bus, was um, he he used to have an earlier slot. They gave him a primetime slot for a while, and then they gave it to Greta Van Susteren, which, I mean, if you – obviously Newsmax is the lint trap of Fox News, you know, like when you when you're doing laundry and you pull that out and you're like, oh, look, a piece of that's cat hair. That's that's Newsmax. And and, um, and so that's where Greta Van Susteren landed. And they ever since they gave her his spot. Oh, it's been gorgeous because he's just angry and he has one sixteenth the viewers. So it's kind of perfect. Glenn Beck is uh, spe- uh, is incredibly stupid and, again, does the misquoting something you just saw. And um, watching him try to blather about something he knows nothing about or just read 10 seconds before he went on air for nine minutes, just trying to stretch it to break is hilarious. <laughs> like old school radio, like, I don't know anything about this. But what I do know, I got to talk till nine after the hour and then I can point at somebody and they'll go to commercial. And without fail, I will see those. My my even my audience knows it's coming like halfway through a segment. We're like, he's filling time. He's this is not about the subject at all. He just he's just crowbarring, you know, uh, peanuts, those like packing peanuts into his into his statement just to get it to the break. Yeah, I. I hey. The, I hear you. Um, and yeah. and those of us, you know, who do radio once in a while, luckily here at CPT, I mean, I can I can always take calls or there are live reads sure. or usually I have tickets to yeah. give away. But every once You're in a while talking. you do. You're yeah. like, especially when I'm I find that when I'm interviewing somebody mm-hmm. who is a candidate for office and they've never run for office before sure. and they've never really done an interview before and their mm-hmm. team has said stick to these points don't say anything else and so they start repeating mm-hmm. themselves and i think to myself first first of all i usually think to myself why am i doing this you know is you know is there nothing else sure. i can do for a living um and then yeah. my my <laughs> second thought is you know how do i how do i survive yeah, how do I survive till till the break? Should I take a little right. nap now and just let them go? You know, what are my right. options here? Yeah, you know, yeah, just go ahead and do your stump speech because that's what we all think it is right now. That's yeah, that's where we are. Um, for the record, um, I you know, 
I obviously don't have that problem because I love the sound of my own voice and I've been <laughs> um, like bu- like bulldozing my way to any microphone in front of me my entire life so ever since I went to Nutrier. So, and anybody who went to Nutrier with me will tell you the exact same thing. That said, I also feel sort of a responsibility and um, to the audience that I got from stand-up, which is, I, you know, I have very few rules about my stand-up, um, but they're pretty damn strict. One is never joke about something that somebody can't change. So if there's something physical about someone or their identity that they can't do anything about, that's off limits. Anything that people choose to do is the target, but what they can't choose to not be, that's off the table. The other one, of course, is always have three times as much material as you have time on stage. As a stand-up, that's the, that's the advice I give to all like starting stand-ups where they're like, five minutes. I'm like, get 15 minutes of material and you'll stop worrying about five. Just start writing. Fill the yep. time. So my show, as you know, and you can tell from me blathering, but I, I, I'm always like, I run out of time before I run out of stuff. Always. <laughs> always. Well, let me cut I'm you like, off right here. Hey, hey, we need to take a break. Um, Hal Sparks yeah. and I will be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Hal Sparks. You can hear him here on WCPT every Saturday. We are talking mm-hmm. about what he uh, does in all of his live streams, how he'll take yeah. um, something from the political world and then he will comment on it. Uh, tell me, uh, Hal, what do you think about the whole George Santos situation? The phony baloney <laughs> congressman yeah. who um, has completely invented a person out of whole cloth. And that person was elected to Congress. I would say, uh, first, it's obviously nothing new. And if anything, it is the natural expression, the the ridiculous, obvious conclusion, the ad absurdum uh inevitability of the Trump wave across MAGA because and and into the Republican Party because Trump's entire fortune is false. Um, He has never had a day of profit in his adult life. The last time the Trump organization made a profit, his dad was running it. He himself has been nothing but a debt king his entire life. The year he wrote uh, Art of the Deal. He had lost more money in in New York uh, real estate than any person in history. He borrowed fifty million dollars from the the trust fund of his siblings, um, his brother and sister, to keep for operating costs for the Trump Organization in the early nineties when he wrote his second book about that. He basically writes these books to shore up why you know while being a terrible businessman, he sells books on being a great businessman to. Uh, credulous morons who will buy ghost written books too yes oh oh, totally i mean obviously because they're not in crayon and smeared with (laughs) uh fish delight grease but the but again it is this is a man who called forbes magazine pretending to be someone else pretending to be his own publicist and talked them into adding him to the forbes you know top 500 list of richest people when there was no evidence of any kind that the natural extension to that is someone like George Santos. If the Republicans were OK with that, there is no end to what they will put up with. And, and Santos is a great example. The interesting thing about him is, I, I, you know, I in all of his lies, the one I found the most offensive and the one that I was actually like, damn, that's for real, 
was when he lied about his name on a GoFundMe and and used what he said was a Jewish name because, and I quote from what his friend said he said was, uh, and this is hearsay, but, uh, you know, uh, what are we going to do? Take George Santos's word? His name is Anthony DeVolder. All right. So his friend said that he said, Jews will give you more money if they think you're a Jew. And to me, that buries the needle on gross misconduct, bigotry. It is it, that is the peak of anti-Semitism. That's even that. I mean, it makes the Jewish comment that he made. Um, and this is I'm not Jewish at all. I'm not even perfunctorily a Jew by any stretch of the imagination. And I found that horrifying. So I can only imagine. But his statement of that for me was the part where I was like, this went from ridiculous to ugly. That's mm-hmm. that's classic, you know, anti-Semitic trope about, you know, hucksterism and Jews and blah, blah. That's exactly that thing beyond the kind of just trying to buy his way into the, the community. So when he showed up and the irony is, is that when he showed up in drag, that will be the last straw. That's the one thing that started the march towards getting him to resign or kicked off. That's I don't that's, know. That will Kevin McCarthy yeah. is not participating in any of those in any of those efforts. Certainly the Republican Party of Nassau County, which is where his district is. Mm-hmm. They're just yeah. I mean, they're ready to douse this guy in gasoline and set him on fire. Yes. Kevin McCarthy, right. on the other hand, put him on two different congressional committees. But uh, effectively useless ones where he'll do do no harm because they don't go anywhere. And he knows this. And he got, you know, Santos's vote for speaker. Exactly. And he's got other deals. He's got to believe that he's got Santos's vote on anything going forward. Anything. Yes. Yeah, he will. He will. And it's the same thing. Like, I think uh, McCarthy was just saying, like, he's now in lockstep with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And she's teeing herself up to be Trump's running mate, which, by the way, if, if you if you knew, as I do, that uh, Trump's next run will peter out and die early, the addition of Marjorie Taylor Greene will shiv the tires faster than almost anything he could do besides that. It is like imagine Sarah Palin, um, uh, you know, literally on steroids, I think, actually. But, the you know, this is Santos. He's also counting on and understand this. He's counting on the district to get rid of him. As long as he's got the vote to be speaker for this, he doesn't need it again unless there's a a, a motion to vacate, which he gave away to the yes. the other Republicans that are there. Um, but at this point, if they lose a vote, if they lose a person, they that the Freedom Caucus crowd also loses leverage as well because they they had kind of a sweet spot where they could in, exercise control over him. But if it starts to squeeze lower. They're going to shed three Congress people in the next year at least. So it, unless they get some, you know, Freedom Caucus leaning people or a MAGA replacement or the special election doesn't flip the seat, they're going to lose control of the House by the fall. So that that it, there was a, a very narrow window where the Freedom Caucus was in this leverage position. And ultimately, by the way, that it amounted to nothing like all of the things that the Freedom Caucus are asking for, with the exception of these seats on committees, which will also not result in any policy and any indictments. It, just understand mm-hmm. that for all the wailing and gnashing of teeth, materially, it goes nowhere. If you think they were frustrated with the with the Durham report, 
wait till they see how little Jim Jordan and that crowd come up with an oversight in their church committee. It's, I mean, they might as well break wind into well, a bag see, and I just think pop that's, it on the House floor. I think that's part of what Kevin McCarthy is counting on. Yes, he had to make nice with the radical elements in his party in Congress to get where he wanted to go, mm-hmm. but... Nothing they do. They're going to bang the pots and pans together. They're going to shout. They're going to scream. They're going to wave their arms. They're going to pass certain bits of legislation that are going to go nowhere. Nothing of any import is going to get done, is going to get verified in the Senate, is going to get signed by Biden. So why wouldn't Kevin McCarthy just sit back? Sure. You want to, uh, should we impeach Hunter Biden's laptop? You go, girl. Let's do it. Let's write that bill. Mm -hmm. Because he's got nothing to lose. They're going to stand there. um, These folks will stand in a, you know, in one of those like batting cage places that you can go and pay, you know, 50 cents to hit baseballs and pretend they're hitting homers. Just film themselves hitting in a batting cage and call everything a homer and use it in their ads in their very red districts to keep themselves afloat. But none of it will result in anything. And even the like the Biden documents thing is going to bite them in the butt eventually as well because of how cooperative Biden is being and how direct they're being about these things. So it like uh, I you know, let them run on the leash because the minute it jerks on them is going to be incredibly funny. That said, Marjorie Taylor Greene said something very telling in her alignment with Kevin McCarthy. And she said she would not be inclined. uh, She was not going to vote for a clean debt ceiling bill, meaning singularly, if they essentially if they attach it to anything else, any other Mm -hmm. must pass thing, which, by the way, the debt ceiling is a must pass thing. Um, that thing, it there there is no point where she, she's gonna they're gonna get a clean debt ceiling bill that will matter. She can not vote for that, and then they can attach one thing to it, and she can go, "Well, I had to," and get yeah. it passed because she knows, and he knows, McCarthy knows, everybody knows that the only people that that will be harmed genuinely. Besides the, you know, the like people getting Social Security checks and veterans, which will bite them in the butt as well, um, are business leaders throughout the country who will lose money if the government shuts down and it affects the credit of the country. The only people who will benefit are Wall Street short sellers and people who put puts on on companies who are counting on them to do it for a certain number of days longer than you know, we've seen in the past, maybe three, four days of, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth. They want it to stretch to eight days so that some real companies stocks take a dip and they can buy in on the low end. And, and Cudlow and all of his crowd are all but saying it on Fox business, that that's what they're counting on Matt Gates and others to do. The problem is there's not enough of them to do this. And, and ultimately it'll be hilarious that they pass it, they pass it because they have to, and then that's when Bobert or somebody calls for a motion to vacate. Yeah, they have um, they'll they'll vote for it. But, you know, mm-hmm. um, we have I want to talk to you about these supposed Main Street Republicans who are in Congress 
and to what mm-hmm. extent they will um, follow along, which they seem to be doing very quietly so far, all of the more radical elements of their party. And at what point, and maybe it's the debt ceiling, at what point mm-hmm. they will discover that indeed they do have a spine. They actually do have a spine. Um, we need to take a real quick break. Hal Sparks and I'll be yep. back with this right after a couple of minutes. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. The lovely Hal Sparks, who you hear every Saturday here on WCPT and on one of his many uh, live broadcasts on Facebook, Mm -hmm. Twitch, YouTube, and occasionally Rumble. Um, We are Mm -hmm. talking about the Republicans in Congress and yeah. um, supposedly when all these votes were all 15 votes were taking place to uh, try to elect Kevin McCarthy speaker, this um, I, 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 I don't even feel like I'm saying this accurately to call them moderate or um, they call themselves the Main Street caucus. They, they try to picture themselves yeah. as moderate Republicans. Supposedly they were whispering sure. in Kevin's ear, you know, we're not going to let these crazy people dictate to us. Of course, none of them said that uh, publicly. None of them have come out to any kind of a reporter and said, by God, we're not going to take it anymore. So I'm wondering, at what point is there a point? Do you see the possibility of a point Mm -hmm. where they do start asserting themselves and making the crazies sit down and be quiet? Yeah, um, ultimately, because uh, the weight will be on them to keep the party from eating itself. And um, the Senate will back them 100 percent. Well, I guess 48 uh, percent, because Rand Paul will probably not be right there along with them in the, in theory. But um, but the um, the in general, yes, they're going to have to because a the debt ceiling concept is nonsense. Um, and a lot of times they will talk about the rising, you know, trillion dollar debt the United States has. But without ever mentioning the rising corresponding GDP the country has in the same way that people, as they move up, move into a bigger house, get better cars, those kind of things. They end up having mortgages that if you just looked at those and you talked about their salary as if it was right out of law school, you'd think they were insane. But if you if you recognize along the way that they joined a, a big law firm, they eventually made partner. You'd go, oh, okay, it makes sense that they have a. You know, their mortgage is a two million dollar home versus a four hundred thousand dollar home, which they used to rent or whatever when they were in college, that kind of idea. So, you know, or two hundred thousand, whatever. So that's the that you'll you'll hear that conversation about the debt a lot the the shocking rise in debt. Well, the shocking rise in in GDP that went along with it is the part that they ignore talking about. But it's the reality of business in the country. It's and and there are plenty of people, by the way who lean right and who will do, you know, are anti-woke and do all that kind of stuff online in the, in the, in the media sphere that I watch, all of them get real. They start gritting their teeth when they talk about, um, you know, the debt ceiling and that, that fight. And the only ones that don't are the investor class crowd that think they can make, they can buy the dip. Well, that's, I was talking um, to uh, John Lothian, who uh, writes a financial newsletter that's read by thousands of people in the industry. And that's what he explained to me. The, the Ken Griffiths, Ken Griffins of the world, they thrive on volatility. So if things yes. get really it's crazy for a while, they're going to make money hand over fist. Predictable. 
Mm-hmm. Predictable volatility is the best. Imagine if you knew for sure, not only that the 2008 crash was coming, but you knew the person who was timing when it would start. Imagine if you had that person, like this person can yank one thread and there's a guaranteed crash, a guaranteed dip. And that's what the Freedom Caucuses are selling to like Chip Roy and the people who've been on um, on Kudlow show and others. That's what they're selling to certain Wall Street people. Back me in my push and I'll definitely eventually vote to raise the debt ceiling. But. I will guarantee it will last three days longer than it did before so that there will be a genuine impact on certain industries. You guys can prepare for it because you got my word. I'm not going to vote unless and and I've got to, you know, our caucus will hold together on that part of it. And then we know that McCarthy's going to offer a, a not quite so clean bill with other stuff attached on this date. You know, within he'll have no choice but to add this in, you know, eight days in. And that's what we'll vote for. Those kind of things. If you knew ahead of time the crash was coming, this is basically a giant act of insider trading. Oh, hell, you're so cynical. I don't believe for a minute that these kinds of conversations (laughs) take place. I just I just can't. I can't believe that anybody would toy with our economy and our government like that. Oh, well, the fun part is, is that the ones who aren't on TV or weren't aren't single person set for life like Kudlow and others and Wilbur Ross and the folks that were in Trump's cabinet. They're not sold. There's a lot of Wall Street that absolutely could take advantage of this. And when it happens, probably will. But they don't they don't trust these guys have a brain between them to be able to pull it out in time or to make sure it's protected. And they're ready to, like, jump on the phone and start screaming at Kevin McCarthy to pass something. And and they they know this. They they're hearing this sales pitch, but it sounds like a timeshare and they don't (laughs) they're nervous about it. Yeah, they're nervous about a timeshare that half the time it's used by Marge and whoever she's sleeping with at RSBN these days. So the this is a reality because they you also know that these guys more than anything, and and this applies back to 2008 and other times. You'll get look at Hank Paulson's flop sweat right before 2000. Remember when he came out as Treasury Secretary and he was announcing that this was happening, and he was shaking. I've never seen anybody, any spokesperson sweat like that. Um, and you knew it was bad, right? Well, one of the reasons was, is because he believed there was an, a, a, he believes in that window of benefit that by the dip zone of things, but he was afraid and rightly so that because it was so pervasive and worldwide, that this would actually genuinely bottom out everything that it would gut the system because you can only go so far before you mm-hmm. truly wreck it because it's and it's what's it's what Trump benefited from in New York for a long time the the New York AGs and you know but for you know Giuliani giving deference to certain people which is obviously clear at this point um and and being I guess uh, a missile aimed at the Italian mob so the Russians and the Chinese could take over in the market there one of the things about the New York real estate market especially, and a lot of the investment, both foreign and domestic, in New York, is that it's such a Gordian knot of crime and criminality that it's so mixed and mobbed up that if anybody pulls a thread on it to arrest almost anybody in it, it leads to everybody else. So they just kind of, like, it's it, it was like it was like criminality in the New York real estate market was too big to fail. 
Uh-huh. And so they they stayed away from it. Right. Well, the and Trump benefited from that all the while thinking that it, he was skating by all these crimes and stuff that he was doing or engaged in because he was smart or or connected or better than other people. When in reality, it was just like they didn't want to open the, the AGs there and the and the DAs didn't want to open that can of worms because it would wreck the New York market. And it would, it would be, it would stink to have the same thing that's going on in London, by the way, with foreign, especially Russian investment and, and like Persian Gulf investment in, in the London real estate market or the Chinese investment in Vancouver, for example, it's the same thing. Like they're afraid to touch it. And then, and these guys who are aware of, they live in New York. A lot of these guys, they know that if these guys yank the, the debt ceiling cord too hard, it could unravel all their stuff because it's so all interconnected and they're already on their heels. So a lot of those guys will be screaming at them as well. So you're saying that they don't trust a Matt Gates or a or a Lauren Boebert to manage the knife's edge. High finance. Um, Yeah. That they just don't think that somehow they have the smarts or the expertise. I'm shocked by that. Hal. Yes, also, I know, um, I know it's, uh, it's difficult. You were mentioned you mentioned uh, Rand Paul. I can't remember real quick before we go to break. Why did Rand Paul's neighbor beat him up? Do you remember when that happened? I can't um, remember. It, I, 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 you know, many people wonder if it was politics and all kinds of other stuff. The reality is it was standard bad neighbor overlap of him being a jerk neighbor and his neighbor getting fed up and them coming to words and then coming to fisticuffs. <laughs> um, it's just that, that I, I, at that point, I don't think the squirrel that's on Rand Paul's head was trained to fight back. So uh, <laughs> unfortunately, right when he needed it most, it retreated. And so he was just left alone at the end of a driveway <laughs> with another with a real Kentuckian, apparently. And uh, and Rand Paul, let's be abundantly frank, skates on his father's own anti-American and anti-Fed nonsense. And uh, and is a it's just a second generation uh, political hack and skate, you know, basically moved to Kentucky because it was an easy seat using skating on his father's name. Um, he's a carpetbagger and a fraud and doesn't know like on a material level, anything about what he's talking about. Like it is, he's one of those amazing people who I don't know how he manages to convince people that he has any, uh, you know, intimate or um, quality knowledge about any of the topics that are in front of him. It's, it it is really, he's a gadfly, second generation political gadfly. I'm speaking with Hal Sparks. We are going to continue our discussion right after a quick break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Hal Sparks. You listen to him on WCPT every Saturday. You can also uh, hear him on one of his many channels, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, sometimes Rumble, though I don't imagine anybody listening to this station probably listens to you on Rumble, do you think? Uh, well, no, I think it mostly like uh, some of the well, trolls do, you know, that's, the, that's where uh. the trolls hang out. So it's to, so if you don't if people don't know what Rumble is, Rumble is like uh, YouTube for right wing idiots. And BitChute is its disgusting, weird, f- free, smelly couch on Craigslist 
cousin and um bit shoot is where like rumble takes its its racist and anti-semitic and anti-vax and pro QAnon cues from that's where all the gnarly stuff is and then anybody who wants to like start chewing some gum and combing their hair and try to work their way into real politics ends up on rumble it's where don jr posts all of his videos so he can have his coke allowance or whatever he spends the money on and it's 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 largely where right-wingers retreat to once they've been bounced off YouTube, not for their conservative ideals, which is a myth. They get kicked off of YouTube because they can't stop being bigots. They can't tailor their language to polite company within reason. And that's why they get kicked off. They do not get kicked, like from Stephen Crowder to, you know, Candace Owens, none of them. I mean, she's even said like Hitler did some good things kind of stuff and it didn't get her kicked off. It's when you're an outright bigot. That's what gets you punted. And it gets everybody punted. They're, they're left-leaning people, um, or allegedly, I call them the faux-gressives, uh, uh, who get <laughs> kicked off for the same thing. That they, you know, they, they, and it's why, by the way, if you ever want to push back on somebody saying conservatives got kicked off of Twitter and conservatives got kicked off of YouTube and they were sensory, 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 Ben Shapiro never got kicked off in that entire time. And the reason is, not because he wasn't talking about the exact uh, the exact same things they were. It's just he was he managed his language better, and because he can manage his language better, they can't. He doesn't violate the terms of service. Um, there is and there's a British YouTuber, and I won't say his name because he doesn't have a big enough audience where any mention of him will it actually buoy him a little bit. He's a British YouTuber who's an absolute racist. Like, you know, skull shape against black people, Jews and blah, 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 like the, all, the everything you can imagine. But he manages to use it in the most patient Queen's English without ever crossing lines where he attributes directly. He he you know, there's a lot of conjunctions in between what he's saying. So he manages to skirt around the YouTube stuff. That's how he stays on the air. So anybody who tells you people get kicked off for their ideas is garbage because there's a lot of garbage ideas on YouTube and Twitter and everywhere else that stays on, never has a break. But even, you know, people who like your show will occasionally get put in Twitmo and they're like, what did I do? And you look at it and you're like, well, he actually said they should be hit by a bus or something. And like, you're like that's the part. It wasn't your yeah. sentiment or your feeling about the person. Um, that's, Though I that's will say from personal experience, they give, as you just said, they give people a lot of leeway because this hasn't happened for a while, but a couple of years ago, there was a guy on Twitter who really was coming after me in a way that was mm-hmm. really threatening. Um, it wasn't just, sure. hey, I think you're stupid. It was, you mm-hmm. know, it was it, it, it really made me feel threatened and I flagged it. Mm-hmm. And of course, I got that little note like a week or two later. Oh, Twitter looked at this and we don't really think there's a problem. But, you know, thanks for mm-hmm. sharing. So I thought to myself, That's a OK, bot, now know, by the way, that's oh. a bot that responds to that. And and the reason is that the bot is not set up to look for context. Never was. So it doesn't look at it in conjunction with other stuff, which is why, by the way, if you ever notice, it says, do you have any other tweets from this person? Uh, if if it's about that kind of stuff, and this would be what I would tell anybody who's getting online threats, and you know from from Twitter or any particular, you know, in particular, this is how they handle it: is you report something, report the other ones too, any of the chain of the conversation, because it may, it it means that 
the algorithm will be, get confused. The bot won't be able to handle it, and a human will review it, and they'll uh-huh. recognize that this person is escalating. And and the 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 you know the bots aren't they're they're trained off some stuff. Like they let a lot of racism go by because some members of certain groups refer to themselves using using the negative word with some regularity, and therefore they don't automatically kill that from accounts. And that's exactly why. The same thing is true of it because it's again, it's mostly moderated. There's so or so like bot moderated, and it has to be because there's so many users. You could never have a one to one watch campaign on Twitter and other stuff. They they have to auto flag stuff. They have to do it digitally, and so until it stacks up to the person level, you're never going to get there. And they take advantage of that. They know this, by the way. Those folks know this, and so they'll. They'll only hit you with one of them and then they'll back down and the rest of their tweets will be kind of like, oh, yeah, what are you going to do? Oh, yeah, that kind of stuff. So it doesn't uh-huh. tie into unless a human looks at it and goes, I see this is a conversation that this person is actually doing. So that would be my warning to anybody who deals with that. The other thing is, is that the vast majority of that violence that speak, interestingly enough, and men aren't completely um, uh, you know, free of it, but most of it is is directed at women. Most of the direct threats on Twitter and, you know, statistically speaking, are aimed at women. Um, also, by the way, the women are responsible for the biggest volume of direct threats, which is interesting uh, to everybody. But when it comes to political stuff, um, it's usually, um, you know, male to female violence, you know, threats on Twitter in particular. And many times, by the way, it, you know, statistically speaking, either bot or foe or, you know, foreign influence campaign kind of accounts, fake people. I am Joe from Ohio kind of um, Mm -hmm. where they're clearly somebody sitting at a Macedonian uh, hacker farm that works for the Russians, that their job all day is to just make people sad and pissed off on, uh, on America's social media so that we hate interacting with our fellow man and we become introverted and fearful and all that kind of stuff. There's a, there's a direct campaign by a couple of countries where they set people on that all the time. The the, the Chinese and the uh, Russians put the most money into it. The Chinese ones, their English is far worse than the Russian one. The Russians have a lot better English speakers amongst them, so it's easier to do it. But quite frankly, most of us respond to like MAGA people with bad grammar and just assume that that's who it is. So it does, we that people look past it. You know, I saw a documentary um, and uh, sadly, because uh, I have so few neurons left, I can't remember the name of the documentary, but they were looking into Mm -hmm. those troll farms and interviewing. I don't ask me how, but they interviewed Mm -hmm. some of the people who got the job and were doing this. And there was this one young woman. She was like, this is how we worked. Uh, We take this. We amplify it. We follow these accounts. Sometimes after we've followed an account, we create um, like a clone account. And, mm-hmm. and somebody was, the, the interviewer was like, you know, you're doing all this really horrible stuff. Is it because, you know, you believe in it? And they looked like, like the interviewer was crazy. And they were like, no, it's a, it was a really good job. It Paycheck. paid really yeah. well. And it was like they mm-hmm. couldn't see beyond that what they were actually doing. And the, uh, 
effect they were having out in the world. No, it was like, hey, you kidding? This is a great job. You know, the hours are and, good. And that, the pay is good. Right. You have to understand, too, when it comes to the, the, the Russian-linked ones, and I talked to Philip Itner, who you should have on your show, by the way, um, who's my friend who's in uh, Ukraine, is that one of the things is that Russians have currently, and for decades, have had such a nihilistic view of the world that it's brutal and harsh and dangerous and, and violent that it so much so that just being snarky or even threatening online is so minor compared to the actual lived life that a lot of them have that they shrug it off. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's like someone who's grown up with just like horrible interfamily violence and then reacting to someone getting shoved in an argument. They, they're going to go, what, is, what do you think that is? My dad knifed me and my mom. Like, you know what I mean? They live like that. So they look at anything shy of that as, you know, as, you know, it's almost sport to them. Um, the other thing, too, is they don't quite understand a lot of what they're saying because they're getting this directive of respond to this with this. Make sure these people feel whatever. Take their, you know, these trigger words and just hammer those. It happens all the time. So I would say, um, and again, do this with any you know human being you interact with. If somebody walked up to you apropos of nothing, never met the person, and yelled "You're a moron" at you, um, your your response, uh, mine anyways, would be to laugh immediately. Uh-huh. You know, I would probably assume that they were a troll who'd watch my show. But if you're not somebody with a show or doing something, and somebody yells at you're like, "Oh, that fellow seems happy," you wouldn't you would take it to heart. You wouldn't go, "Oh my god, dear God, am I?" Am I a moron? Like for the rest of the day, you wouldn't do that because it's a stranger in public yelling something from across the street or you wouldn't even hear it yelled and think it was genuinely directed at you. The same thing is true on online. Unless you've met somebody personally, you can develop relationships with people online, but it's always going to be at an arm's length because you genuinely don't know them. If you eventually meet them, cool, then you can, uh, you know, take whatever you want that they say to heart. But anything, uh, anybody online, I, especially if they have a a cartoon or a fake um, avatar and a silly name with no real name attached to it. You think I'm going to take a single word that person says seriously, even if their name sounds real, like that doesn't mean it is look at Anthony DeVolder slash George Santos. (laughs) Everyone you meet online that you have not shaken hands with in real life is, is George Santos until proven. Otherwise you don't have to, you don't have to punch down at them. You don't have to be mean, but you also don't have to defer to them for your own self-worth. I don't get that. In 2015, 2016, trolling reached a zenith. There was an industry there. And, and that documentary you're talking about happened, I think, in 2017. And it was about those particular people, you know, that group, that time. But since then, trolling has largely jumped the shark. And it's almost cute now, so much so that even when you know, uh, Elon Musk led all these, uh, you know, people like Cat Turd and all these other right wing trolls back onto Twitter. The impact that they, they're having now isn't anywhere near the impact they were having years ago because people's skins have gotten thicker in, you know, in the interim. Mm-hmm. And no thanks to, you know, and not too much uh, thanks to people like me who will remind <laughs> you that, you know, and I welcome trolls into my chat room when they're here because we have nothing to fear from them and they can blather and yell all they want to because I'm just not the kind of person who will hand over my self-worth to a stranger. It just seems like we'll see a, anybody crazy. Who- 
who starts trolling you and thinks that yeah. they can win a battle of wits with you right. is already right. in well, trouble. It's like when I listen to sure. Tom Hartman and once in a while he gets a caller who wants to argue with him about U.S. history. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy is, right. has an encyclopedic knowledge of the entire history of the United States. Right. Every person, every document, where they wrote it, mm-hmm. you know, who was in the room. And it always amazes me. I'm like, you know, dude, you want to fight somebody about history? Mm-hmm. Call me, you know, right. somebody who's a couple neurons short of an entire brain. You might gain some traction here. But with Tom Hartman, no. So, oh, yeah. uh, any, you I, know, any- uh, I will say for the record, I'll take on Tom Hartman any day of the week because uh, history is part interpretation as well. And everybody can have their own take on what they see and they can read an argument based on what their belief system about the people involved is. That doesn't necessarily mean you're right about why they signed a piece or of paper or made a document or those things. If you you know trace, you know, material aspects of their existence and say they must have done this because of this when it doesn't necessarily pan out that way. And and I I love Tom. I've loved him for years, Um, but I'll gladly go toe to toe with anybody. (laughs) How do you like that? Um, And um, and he and he makes the mistake of having Richard Wolf on all the time. And I think Richard's terrible. So that's the one hang in there. But I will say this, that I you know, Hartman is not afraid to put people on who are uh, against his point of view. And he yes. gives them, I think on his free Fridays, he gives them, you know, deference. He lets them come on first and talks to them. I think that's a bit clickbaity and whatever, but the guy's had a show on for a long time. He knows what he's doing. So there you go. Um, we need to take a break for news at the top of the hour. If you can hang on a few more minutes, I'd love to talk to you for a couple sure. more minutes. And I would love yeah. to have Philip on any time. Uh, you need to right. shoot me his contact information. That would be I great. I will. Uh, Hal, Hal we'll Sparks and I are going to be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. The lovely House Sparks has agreed to stick with us a couple of more minutes, so I'm going to try to see if we can get some predictions from him. How long do you think, Hal, Kevin McCarthy is going to be the Speaker of the House? Um, I, I think less than a year, certainly. I, I got we'll, Oh, we'll, well see you're his... giving him a lot of time then. I think it's going to be less than six months. Yeah, well, right after, you'll see the first vote right after the debt ceiling passes. That's where the freak out will happen. The problem is it will probably, number to number, if, if a couple of these folks aren't broomed yet, will basically result in another four days of the same stuff. And, and ultimately, the... During that time, Perry and Gates and, and uh, Gosar and Bobert are are losing friends by the day while they are, you know, in in and Bobert is on shaky ground because she's in a way more purple district than she thinks she's in. She is she's acting like somebody with a hard red district and a full on mandate. And she absolutely is not. So. She's well, she just who, barely who won re-election. She's got to have yeah, some exactly. idea she's on thin ice. Nope. She's that thick. No. And the, it, yeah. And that issue, it, you know, she's one of the few that I, I have marked in my possible recall column in the next two years by her own voters if she goes too far off the res because of that. Um, specifically because she has no idea who she works for. 
And, and, but they're, I mean, but they also have others. We're going to have to watch over the spring. You know, you're going to have a couple of Republicans step down. They'll be replaced with people who will probably fit in that moderate McCarthy category. One of them or two of them are, are MAGA leaning. So we'll see. But once that happens, some of the membership of the Freedom Caucus is going to be chipped down a bit. So, um, you know, that that in and of itself um, is it, that that's the trap he's got to watch out for, for for McCarthy. I think it's the first vote happens after the debt ceiling because it's going to pass. Some version of the debt ceiling raise is going to pass. I got news for everybody. Uh, everybody writes articles about this, wailing and gnashing of teeth. We've been through this so many times before. Same thing's going to happen. And quite frankly, they all know it has to pass. And when you've got when you've got Marge Green saying, I, I don't think I could vote on a clean bill, that means she would, you know, if they attached it to any one of the other bills that has to pass, she would absolutely vote for it. And that means tons of other Republicans. And the Democrats will all vote for it. We don't even need that many. As long as he bring, if he brings it to the floor... They can all the entire Freedom Caucus, by the way, can cross their arms and say, I'm not voting for this. And he goes, I just want to bring it to the floor so we can show them who's boss. And then all the Democrats vote for a clean raise and a bunch of Republicans do. And that all they need is 20. And those folks know they need to get reelected and are probably have more net worth than the rest of the Republicans combined in the House. The folks that will vote for it because they know they're the ones that are going to take the hit financially. So that's that, uh, you know, that's my theory in this. I again, (laughs) he's there for himself, kind of like Paul Ryan, where he's going to he's going to set something up so that he can buzz off. I mean, Paul Ryan basically set up the the Trump tax break, which is really the McConnell tax break, helped him set that up, get it across the finish line and then quit so he could enjoy it. He quit (laughs) for the time. Paul Ryan, I'm dead serious. Paul Ryan left office because there was no better time to make money hand over fist with the Trump tax break until somebody comes along and knocks it down. And that's all he wanted to be there for. Like, as long as he did that, it's done. Is it? It's like Amy Coney Barrett. She could she could quit the Supreme Court now because Dobbs, you know, Roe v. Wade was her whole thing. She could quit. She could resign for health reasons and tour on that forever. Her, you know, she could do, you know, paid church like revivals for a hundred K a pop for the rest of her life and print money. And then, I don't know, sell bunker food to preppers and, (laughs) and make herself richer than she could ever be. Paul Ryan did that on purpose. Yeah. So same thing. McCarthy might find whatever his point point that he gets across the line is and walk. Hmm. Ooh, that's a prediction. Well, we'll put that one in the money to be made going, man, I wish. Well, we'll mm-hmm. see. Um, and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you and I are going to break out of this radio thing and start bringing in some of those, you know, making those uh, 100,000 speaking engagements. Yeah. Sure. OK. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that. The problem is, is I, and I don't want to depress people. I don't want to upset people. And I know that when I say this, everybody gets really mad. But the world is not going to end. I'm sorry. It's not going to. I know some of you are counting on it, be it asteroid or climate change or, or Russian nukes, that this is all, you know, the, the, the world is going to stop spinning at some point, And therefore, you're just going to be able to get off this ride free and clear without having to face your own bad decisions or clean up your act or or, you know, settle down or whatever. Uh, that's not going to happen. And um, unfortunately, that that means I will never make that 
that sweet, sweet prepper money that Alex <laughs> Jones and Jim Baker and all the Flashpoint people and, you know, they make selling, you know, giant tubs of pancake batter and, and cans of beans for your submerged kerosene tank that you'll ride out the, the <laughs> tribulation after the rapture in. Yeah, I, can't, I just can't. I just can't. I'm not going to. Sorry. I'm not going to be right. able to sell that because nobody would buy it. Well, we'll hang in there with you, Hal. Thanks so much All for right. doing this. And remember, send me Philip's information because I'll absolutely have him on the air. I would, uh, I would love that. Uh, Hal Sparks, I will. ladies and gentlemen, uh, you hear him here every Saturday. You can hear him on a lot of different channels. And apparently, right? Yeah, and, and you've got to real quick plug the casino performances. Oh yeah, tomorrow night I'm at uh, Yamava Indian Casino in uh, in Riverside, California, which is a great place. We played there a couple of times at Rock and Brews. Um, it's the Kiss uh, Bar Grill with a big stage in it. It's really fun. And uh, and then um, Valentine's Day, I host the Ultimate Jam at the Whiskey on Sunset, which I am now the regular host of. And then the Friday after that, we're in Huntington Beach doing that as well. And then I do a regular monthly show at Flappers in Burbank. Uh, dates to follow because we're just setting up the year now. Um, I do a residency there. So, yeah, it's a good time. Thank you, Hal. Thank you for joining us. I love talking to you. Thanks it's always me. a pleasure. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, before, Absolutely. Okay. Cheers. Before before we go to break, um, I want to get Paul Shivari on the phone lines. We're going to give away some tickets. Remember, we have this forum. Uh, yeah, you may have heard me talk about it once or twice or 10,000 times. This coming Thursday, we are going to be broadcasting from downtown from noon to probably 2.30. Who knows? Whatever. Um, and we would like you to come join us. We will even feed you lunch starting at 11 o'clock. So if you are going to be in the downtown area Thursday around a lunchtime and you would like to stop over and listen to all of the candidates for mayor of Chicago and hear what they have to say, that would be terrific. If you are the second, third and fourth caller, we're going to give away uh, three pairs of tickets right now. Second, third and fourth caller to 773 763 9278-773-763-9278. We're going to give away a pair of tickets. The forms this Thursday, the 26th at the Morning Star Auditorium. That's across from Daly Plaza. I think it's 22 West Washington. Um, Santita, Patty, and I will be there. It's sponsored by Morning Star, Roofers Local 11, and Oscar Iberian Rugs. And remember, you ha- can't call in unless you're at least 18 years of age, live in the Chicagoland, Northwest Indiana area. One entry per person, one winner per household, void where prohibited by law. Listeners may only win or qualify to win once every 30 days. Complete rules on our website, WCPTA20.com. Good luck. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT820. We are having this mayoral forum this week. One of our sponsors is uh, Chicago Voice and Data Authority, and uh, Christina Baran joins us now from that company. And uh, one of the things that we're going to be talking about at uh, when we start this discussion is we're going to be talking about diversity. But first, Christina, welcome to our airwaves, and thank you so much for being a big supporter of WCPT. Well, thank you, Joanne, for having me on your show. Um, I want to talk to you about a diversity and, you know, your experience. You're a minority. You're a woman. You're building a business here in Chicago. What has that been like? Um, 
There has been a building a business as a minority woman in Chicago has been a, a great and fulfilling experience. With um, being able to have a, a very diverse uh, company. What have been some of the obstacles you've had to overcome? Well, uh, some of the obstacles that I have um, overcome is um, showing that our company, that my company, Chicago Voice and Data, is just as capable as um, the other companies, big companies that has that has been established. Our company is just as uh, professional as as the others. Is it hard to break into uh, what must be kind of an old boys club? Yes and no, because I have had always played with uh, boys, so I know how they play. <laughs> ah. and, um, <laughs> and, it, and it's been fun and, um, and a great experience. And you work so, closely. Um, I believe um, all your electricians are IBEW, Local 134. You work closely with unions, is that correct? Correct, Joanne. Uh, Chicago Voice and Data is a Latina-owned firm. We are an electrical contractor. We specialize in all low-voltage systems, and we are certified MBE, WBE, and signatory to IBEW Local 134. Why did you think it was important to be a union-affiliated shop? Um, it is important in, in order to grow the business because I owe a, a, non-company, a non-union company before, and this this was one of my dreams to be union in order to grow. Mm-hmm. And what advice do you have if somebody is a young woman listening to this conversation who has thought to herself, you know, someday I'd like to have my own business? What are the two best pieces of advice you would give her? Mm, I I will say. The advice that I will give um, female entrepreneurs, it will be to follow your dreams, be positive, and don't let anybody put you down. And the word failure stop you from following your dreams. Do you hope one day to um, expand your company outside of Chicago? Um. That will be great, um, but as, as as for now, we're very happy working here in Chicago. We love Chicago, and we want to keep our business here. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever participate in some of the union apprenticeship programs? We have a, a segment we do here at WCPT that we call Union Strong. And one of the things they're always talking about is to how to get more, especially women and minorities, into the trades. Uh, do you help with that? Uh, yes, uh, we're. Um, I sit on the board of Hire Three Hundred and Sixty subcontractor ah. board, and uh, it is a great program. Just as uh, we, as a company. We also, we actively give diverse people opportunity and the electrical industry by sponsoring and hiring, especially those from disadvantaged areas like like me. I was um, 
uh, communicating with one of the people back at the station who you've been working with, and they told me that your story is the American dream. Can you explain? Uh, sure. Um, I, I, I came from Mexico City to the United States, and I live at a little village. I went to Farragut High School, and after I graduated, I went to work with my father as a helper doing electrical work. This is how I began to meet people wow. in the union. Yes, and, and I realized that I wanted to open my own company, and I did. Uh, I opened um, my non-union company for four years, and in order to grow, uh, I, I opened uh, my union company. As I met uh, a lot of my professional fellows that work with me uh, when I was working before. Mm-hmm. Will you, um, I know that you're helping us with the mayoral forum that we are doing the 26th. Will you be able to be there in person? Will I have a chance to meet you? Yes, I will be there, Joan. I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. Is there a particular candidate that uh, you're most eager to see what they have to say? Um, yes. <laughs> Are you allowed to tell me? Um, when I meet you in person, Joan, <laughs> that will be great. <laughs> She would tell me now, but then she would have to kill me, and we nobody wants that. Um, so, you know, hey, if you would, um, like I said, we've already given away um, some tickets. Patty Vasquez is also going to be giving away tickets. And if I am not mistaken, uh, tomorrow morning, Santita Jackson on her 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. show, she is also going to be giving away tickets to this forum it is, um, it is right here. Um, it is this Thursday. Turi Ryder is going to be back at the studio and she's going to kind of introduce things at noon. Then she's going to throw it to us at the Morning Star Auditorium. And, um, we are going to be talking to each and every one of the candidates that is going to be on the ballot for next mayor of the city of Chicago. There are nine of them right now. We are going to be starting at about 12.15, and we are going to go until we've asked everybody every question. And if you have uh, scored some of the tickets, show up a little bit early because we are going to be serving lunch. Yes, it is a free lunch. You're going to be, we're going to be serving lunch starting at 11 a.m. And I will also be there, um, hanging around and I hope you can come up and, and say hello. I think it's going to be really interesting. I think it's going to be a very informative, um, forum because as I'm sure you know, if you listen to this station or, you know, read any, any, pretty much any publication, and we've got some serious front runners who are really running neck and neck. Lori Lightfoot, Paul Vallis, Chewy Garcia are um, Brandon Johnson and Willie Wilson. They are really uh, leading the pack here. And it's going to be interesting to see what they say to us on Thursday um, to try to really make an impact on you, the audience, and to really set themselves apart from the other candidates. 
And also, I want to thank you for those of you who emailed in possible questions. We want to thank you for that. We are going to be talking about, you know, the major issues that the city of Chicago is facing, of course, and see what each and every candidate has to say for themselves. And I really want to to thank you, Christina. Christina Baran is um, the owner of Chicago Voice and Data Authority, and she's one of the people who is helping to make this forum possible. Christina, I look forward to uh, seeing you on Thursday. Make sure you stop over and say hello, okay? I will. Thank you so much, and it was a pleasure to be on your show, and it will be a pleasure to meet you in person. Yes, thank you. I think so, too. Um, in just a couple of seconds, we are going to be taking a break. Um, and um, before we do that, I have a live read I need to do. I'm going to do it right now. Hawk VW. Um, if you haven't experienced Hawk Volkswagen for yourself, Hawk Volkswagen of Joliet, now is a great time. They have a huge selection of new Volkswagen models, Jettas, Passats, Tiguan, Atlas, and Atlas Crossport. Over 30 of each in stock all the hard-to-find trim levels and colors all ready for immediate delivery. Outstanding service, selection, and a first-class experience. That's why so many people go to Hawk Volkswagen. It's on Jefferson Street in Joliet. Or you can find out what they've got and what you might like to talk to somebody about online at hawkvw.com. We are going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, you know, that isn't just mayoral candidates who are going to be on the ballot in Chicago. Uh, there are some aldermanic seats up for grabs. Coming back, we are going to be talking to uh, one of those candidates. Uh, Jesse Gutierrez would like to be the alder for the 30th Ward. We'll talk to Jessica Gutierrez right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. February 28th, a lot of different people in a lot of different places. It isn't just Chicago, Lake County, too. Uh, you may be going to the polls, and you should find out who is going to be on that ballot so you can take a little bit of time to get to know them and make an informed decision. If you live in the city of Chicago, there are at least 15 aldermanic seats that are up for election, either because somebody has taken a different job, or in the case of Sophia King, decided to run for mayor, or just simply uh, decided to retire. Ariel Reboiris is retiring, and that leaves the 30th Ward in search of a new alder. One of the names you're going to find on your ballot for that role is Jessica Gutierrez, who joins us now. Jessica, thanks for being here. Thank you, Joan. It's an honor. Well, you know, politics is in your blood, isn't it? Um, I mean, has your father, Luis, given you some pointers? You know, yes, definitely. My dad gives me the, the, the best pointers, but they're more from a dad perspective. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I've always been interested in politics, but I've always stood on the sidelines and just looked in. I saw my dad's career, you know, I was, um, and, and I witnessed, you know, many, many great things, but I never thought until I was a bit older that it was something that I wanted to do. I was too afraid. I was scared. Um, but you know, after traveling and, and, um, you know, working on my Ph.D. down in the South, I came back home and I was like, no, Chicago, we have a lot to work on. 
Well, you know, how did you overcome that? Was it like a fear of public speaking or just the fact that, you know, and uh, sadly, this is even more true for women than men, that kind of once you put yourself out there, it isn't going to be all rainbows and unicorns. How did you? I think I think you're 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 right up. You're in the right alley space. Um, I just didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think that of myself. I didn't think I could do it. Um, but you know, I, like I said, I, I, um, I, I kept working my way through academia and, you know, while I was sitting, uh, you know, behind the computers doing tons of research on, on my PhD thesis, I was like, you know what, this is great. I, I, I love the research. I love what professorship does, but I'm not made for the ivory tower. I like to talk. I like to get my hands dirty. I love people. And I want to solve the problems and not just critique them, right? So I wanted to get out there and say, you know what? You know how they say, like, when you're younger, you're you're super insecure. And then you just, I grew into myself and mm-hmm. I found the things about me that I really loved. And I think that there are young women out there and women as a whole need to know that, that they can do it. They can press, they, 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 they should believe in themselves. And I want to make sure that they're believing in themselves. You said that most of the advice that you get from your dad is dad advice more than political advice. But but growing up, see him seeing him run for political office and hold political office. What was something that you took in that that stood out to you watching him do that for his profession? To have empathy for people, even if you're not in the same situation as them. Um, my father was a champion for, for immigration reform, and I was lucky enough to be able to travel all over the United States from Florida to Washington State to California, Arizona, you know, Postville, Iowa. Like, we've gone everywhere. And even though we were not immigrants to the United States and, you know, we didn't have, tr- like, troubles with being undocumented and, and all of that, you know, I saw, we, you know, my father saw people in need. And he went in and championed the issue, and I think that that's what we all should be doing. It's not only about what we can, what we've gone through in our lives, right, but protecting others, right, who are vulnerable. What would you say right now is the greatest need in the 30th Ward? The greatest need in the 30th Ward um, is, is a great public safety plan. And when I talk about public safety, it's not just police. It's not just law enforcement. We've had 20 years of an alderman who has not been responsive, who has not been transparent, and who has not been held accountable. So we have this 20 years of not knowing where are the abandoned buildings and the businesses, the abandoned businesses. Where is the visibility issues? Where are issues in infrastructure? Why aren't all three of the police districts that encompass the 30th Ward, why are the commanders not talking to each other? Why aren't we having the forms? Why are we not organizing? That's what the 30th Ward is, is, is asking for, is someone to, to bring in new leadership and be bold about progress. Um, and that's what we plan to do in my first 100 days. I'm going to go block to block in the 30th Ward and audit the ward. Not only for, for infrastructure, but making sure all of the different revenues of income and of, of, of funding, that they're going to the right places, right? Because all I hear at the doors is, where's the money going, right? Mm-hmm. Why are my streets paid? Why is this not happening? And I'm like, the answers are in research. And we need, we need strategies that are, that are driven in data.
So I want to make sure that that me and the other departments in the city of Chicago are, are, are getting that data to the people and to the residents of the 30th Ward. There has been some talk that that would be one of the most significant changes that could be brought to the police department. It would be to make it the work they do, where they do it, how they do it, driven by data rather than the, the whims of politics. That seems to be something that's true across the board. I don't think that our ordinances, I don't think that, um, you know, a lot of the, the policy that we see happening in the city of Chicago, I don't believe that it's always that it's always rooted in research. We need to put more money into that. Right. We cannot just have um, aldermen <laughs> passing, you know, ordinances, but they're not professionals in, in, in um, whatever the topic may be that they're not. Right. You cannot ask an alderman who's not a surgeon to talk about brain surgery. You just can't do that. We need the professionals and we have them here in the 30th Ward. I have talked to people from teachers to landscapers to engineers to doctors and lawyers and organizers, and they all want to get involved. We have a very intelligent citizenry out there. Why are we not using them? You're a teacher, and one of the things that you have said you want to do is you want to improve education. Do you mean education across the board? Are you talking about public schools? And if so, what specific improvements would you like to see put in place? Well, I, I want to I want to make sure that every child in Chicago is receiving an excellent education because that's what they deserve. I think you know what, what something I've seen in some of our neighborhood high schools is um, the want to bring back vocational programming. I think that that would be wonderful. I've gotten tons of labor support, and when I talk to them, I'm like, why aren't we having the carpenters and the iron workers, right, go into schools and teach these very valuable lessons, right, so that so that just if you don't want to go to college, you know that you're going to have a professional career to, to, to land on. So I think having vocational programming um, is, is really important, but right now, it's making sure that all of the, the neighborhood schools, right, are reaching that point of excellence. The only way that we're going to do that is, is, is making sure that we are fully communicating with all of the local school councils and that they're communicating with each other. I want to hold those forums. I, I see aldermen as the, the ultimate community organizer, and we need to take it back to the basics. And I think that if we can do that, then let's start the conversations. Sometimes these conversations, Joan, they're uncomfortable. They're going to cause discomfort. But any teacher will tell you that there's absolutely no learning or progress coming if you're feeling comfortable in your situation. So I want to make things a little uncomfortable in Chicago. So maybe we can learn something. Well, as an older person, how would you continue to support uh, schools superintendent uh, Pedro Martinez. Um, I think you know. I think he's somebody that we're going to have to keep having conversations with. I don't want to exclude anybody from 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 these conversations. I want to sit down with them myself, and I want to make sure that we're all talking right to to some of the leadership and seeing what leadership has to be removed and what has to be replaced. Um, I don't have a. a 
a you know a direct answer right now but he's somebody that i i i want to i want to hear exactly a plan and the same for the cpa joan like i want to make sure that we're having the president of the of the chicago transit authority being held accountable and quarterly i want him to show up at city council to tell us of the improvements um, of what's going on at cta well, that's also something the current city council would like, and they haven't been terribly successful at getting him to come and talk to them. Well, I'm hoping that the the 15 person alder person turnover rate that you're talking about, maybe we can get it done. How would you describe yourself politically? Would you call yourself a progressive, middle of the road, moderate? Listen, I'm a practical progressive. Um, That's an interesting way to put it. I'm a practical progressive. And what I mean by that is that I don't believe in purity politics. You know, I believe that we all have to sit at the table. Chicago's municipal races are nonpartisan. And I don't believe in blocking even people who seemingly may not like me. Right. Because what you're doing is you're blocking a conversation for progress. So I want to be able to sit at the table and just as we do at the national level, right, and we Mm -hmm. meet in the middle of the aisle, that does not mean that I'm going to agree with what everybody on the other side has to say. But at least I sat down and spoken to them. And I think that that's much more uh, that's much more that I can say than than the other side itself. Right. I, I want to sit down with everybody. I want to have those conversations. And yes, of course, I'm. Of course, I'm a progressive and I I am I'm pro-choice and I believe in a woman's right to choose. And, and you know, and, and I believe in immigration reform and I believe in, in you know, in, in hitting the streets and getting the boots to the ground. I believe in all of those things. But I'm not going to deny somebody a seat at the table to have a discussion that can further better our city. I'm talking with Jessica Gutierrez. Uh, she is a practical progressive who will be on the ballot to be the next alder person for the 30th Ward when you vote February 28th. We are going to take a break and continue our talk with her right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Jessica Gutierrez. She is running for older person in the 30th Ward. You will find her name on the ballot February 28th in the city of Chicago. We have been talking with her about neighborhood schools and public safety. One other thing that I want you to touch on, uh, Jessica, is spending reform. I know that's something that you've been doing a fair amount of talking about. What does spending reform look like to you? Hello? Oh, I yeah. Can you hear me now? Jessica? Yeah. Hello. Did, yeah, okay, did you hear my... I don't know if you heard my question. Yeah, did you? I got the question. Yes. I couldn't... I could, I, so, Sunny, listen. Okay, so in, in the 30th Ward, I want to I take this even more local, right? In the 30th Ward on Central and Belmont, there is a special service area. It's the sec- second oldest special service area. And what that means, for those who don't know, is that um, residents and uh, businesses alike are charged an extra tax uh, to go into uh, what should be infrastructure and business infrastructure in the 30th Ward and in, within that special service area. There is over half a million dollars a year that is spent on the infrastructure and maintenance of a dirty, disgusting, 
parking lot that no one really uses, right, on Central and Belmont. I want to know where that money's going. Where is it coming from? How is it being spent or misspent? These are all going to require audits, right? And I think that our city needs a huge audit. We need TIF reform, right? I'm not against having, um, I'm not against, you know, TIFs and, and bringing in revenue that way. I think that we need to find many ways of, of bringing different different forms of revenue into the, into the city of Chicago. But we need to know where the money is going. People are getting more and more tired of seeing the taxes go up and not knowing where the spending is happening. I think that is, we're going to create camaraderie in the city of Chicago by being more transparent with the residents and making sure that people are paying their fair share. Do you have, have you talked to any other, um, either people running for aldermanic seats or people currently occupying them to see what kind of support there is for that kind of an idea? When it, well, when it comes from, yes, yeah, so I, I haven't spoken to others, um, to other aldermen. I know that it has been on their radar. Uh-huh. I just think that the, re, the core of all of this is not having leadership that's ready to step up. We have leadership that is complacent. We have leadership that has no energy. We have leadership that lacks ingenuity, right? We, we can, we can, we can um, usher in new leadership that knows how to, to, to ask and demand that the city does these audits so that we can see the line items and we can see where the money is going. And I, there's tons of people, there's tons of residents that want to see where it's going. You know, there's a TIF. There's a, um, a TIF district in the 30th Ward, and there's a special service area in the 30th Ward, and there are tons of air, there's tons of um, economic um, hubs in the 30th Ward, and we just want to revitalize them. And honestly, residents are not asking for a lot. They're just asking to see receipts, and they're asking for, for transparency in, in terms of communication, Right. I had families that tell me they're like, listen, maybe it's going to take four or five, six years to revitalize a certain corner, a certain avenue. We're OK with that. But be honest with us. Mm-hmm. They're tired of this honest politician. When you say that uh, there's no leadership, are you by any chance uh, referring to the mayor's office? Um, listen, I'm not, I'm not referring too much to the mayor's office as I am re- referring to, to, to more local leadership around here in terms of, of the aldermen and the 30th Ward. But, you know, listen, he has been her rubber stamp since she started in, in office. So, you know, just like I cast the blame on Ariel for not revitalizing and, and bringing energy into the ward, we also have to blame Lori. We um we have a few minutes left. I um would like to give you that time to say to the listeners um any message that you really want them to take away from this interview. Yeah. Listen, I'm a mother, I'm a teacher and a lifelong Chicagoan who's running to represent the 30th ward. We have a ward that expands far far west the far east. It is a very horizontal ward. We need a unifier. We need somebody who understands the cultural and the community and the neighborhood nuances and intricacies, right? So that we can bring everybody together. You know, on, on 
while while it may look right in terms of educational um, level and income bracket that the east and the west side of the ward are very different. But at the end of the day, they all want the same thing. They want safety. They want safe streets. They want to make sure that they can afford to stay in Chicago and make sure that they're getting excellent education for their children. Right. So we have the common denominator here. What we need is a leader who's ready to bring everything together. And I'm ready to go downtown and be bold. And you know what, Joan? Maybe just a little obnoxious. (laughs) I love that in my politicians. That's the perfect description. Uh, Jessica, thank you for joining me today. And I wish you you a lot of luck. Uh, I really think that uh, you'd be terrific not only in city council, but terrific fun to report on as part of city council. Uh, so thanks so I'm much. Ready, Joan. Whenever you want me, I'm ready. <laughs> okay. It's a deal. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, we are going to uh, wrap things up. Uh, it has been, um, it's been a, a great day on the radio. It is always fun to talk with to politicians, and of course, it's always wonderful to talk to the lovely Hal Sparks. Tomorrow we have an interesting show. We're going to talk about Ukraine, bring you up to speed on what's happening with the fight over those tanks. We're going to talk anti-Semitism, and uh, we're going to talk with some people in office who are contemplating possibly resurrecting the idea of a graduated income tax uh, yet again. So join us for that. And then, of course, this Thursday, um, I am going to be on the air much earlier than usual. We are going to, Turi Ryder is going to kick things off at 12, at 12.15. Me and Santita Jackson and Patty Vasquez are going to be uh, grilling, <laughs> refereeing the candidates who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. It promises uh, to be a fascinating afternoon, and I hope you will enjoy it, uh, enjoy it and be a part of it. Um, that's this Thursday. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, usually on Sunday, I kind of start thinking about, you know, what's going to happen on Monday and what I'm going to say and what's important for me to cover and what's important for me, particularly at the start of the show, to share with you. But I have to say that I was so gutted by the news about Lynn Bramer's passing early yesterday morning that um, it really was all I could think about. It... um, It's hard to lose somebody who has been so much a part of your life. And I'm not just talking about me because he was my personal friend. I mean, he was a part of your life, whether you ever actually met him in person or at a Cubs game or at some kind of an appearance or at a concert. This was a man who knew how to live and would that we could say that about all of us. As I said earlier, At the beginning of this show, Lynn Bramer did a Lynn's bin where he talked about bagpipes and how much that music was meaningful and emotional. And he said, bagpipes are the best way to leave this world and the best way to enter the next. So um, 
going to let you know that Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. And for those of us who knew and loved Lynn Bramer, we're going to go out with bagpipes tonight. Good night. <laughs>